Well, good morning. It is good to have you here on a very, very uh, Gore-Tex morning. Uh, glad that you braved the elements to be here and worship with us. Those of you online, glad that you're with us as well, wherever you're signing in from. Thanks for being here today. Um, I grew up in the Portland, Vancouver area. We moved there in 1970. And so by virtue of just the geography, I became a Portland Trailblazer fan and no clapping or booing. I'm just saying that was the way it was. And when I was 13 years old in the 1976-77 season, the Portland Trailblazer actually won the NBA championship, and the whole area just went crazy. This Rip City mindset was out of control. But it was, a, uh, it was, a, it was a, an event, not a dynasty. And so that was a, a, an apex, a, a pinnacle, a high point. But by the 80s, things had begun to decline quite severely. So that in 1984, when it came time for the NBA draft, the Portland Trailblazers had the number two pick in the first round, which usually is an indicator that you haven't been doing really well to have that high of a draft choice. And that year in the NBA draft, the Houston Rockets had the first choice, and they they drafted a, a man named uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. Some of you may remember Hakeem the Dream, and he had a great NBA career. And Portland had the number two pick. And Portland looked at all the different players that were available, all the different options that they could pick from the whole, not only nation, but really the world, if you think about it. And they picked a, a young man who had been a, a national sensation in his high school basketball career. He'd done pretty well in college. And they chose him. They needed a big man because Bill Walton's, you know, years were gone. And, and so they chose a seven-foot, one-inch uh, center. His name was Sam Bowie. The problem is that Sam Bowie was accident-prone, had a marginal career in the NBA, and within five years was traded away from the Portland Trailblazers. That's what they used the second pick in the entire draft for. The interesting thing is that the third choice that day went to the Chicago Bulls, and they picked a Tar Heel from North Carolina you may have heard of, named Michael Jordan. Undeniably the best basketball player who has ever graced the planet Earth. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder if there was ever time that the powers of be in Portland ever looked back and said, what were we thinking? If only we had, because they missed that opportunity. Now, forget the basketball teams. I know in my life, there have been times when in that 2020 hindsight, I look back on some decisions that I made and I'm thinking, what was I thinking? If only I had, if only I had, things would have been so much different. And I, and I got a feeling that I'm not alone on this one. My guess is that every single one of you have had those kind of moments where you look back on some decisions that you've made and you probably said, what was I thinking? And if you're a little harsher on yourself, you probably said, why was I so stupid? You know, if I only hadn't done this, if I would have done this, things would have been so much different. See, we do this, but it's, it's not just us. And when we have these moments, especially when they're bigger, we get to this, this moment where we have the, the time where we have the quintessential Homer Simpson moment where we just say, go, go. That's what he would always do. He would always say, do, do, do. Homer Simpson made that little phrase, do, famous. Now you can trace its roots back to the 1940s in radio, but Homer made it really, really famous. And according to Wikipedia, do means this, an exclamation typically used after Homer injures himself, realizes that he has done something stupid, 
or when something bad has happened or is about to happen to him, realizes that he has done something stupid. Dope! And we have those dope moments in our life. And some of them, quite frankly, are, are really quite benign. Oh, I ate too much and oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Okay, that's going to be okay. I stayed up too late binge watching something on Netflix and now I'm not sharp for this test or this presentation or the day at work. Oh, what was I thinking? Those are pretty harm, relatively harmless. But there are other decisions that we make in life that are far more profound. That have not just a Homer Simpson doe moment, but may impact our families may impact our dreams, may impact our careers, may impact us financially, may impact us with our reputation, may impact us in a ministry. And it's not just us, but we have these things. And sometimes the consequences of those decisions go on and on and on. And what's maybe even worse is sometimes the consequences ripple out to those who we love and care for. That my decisions impact my children, my parents, my spouse, my coworkers, my employer, my employees, my neighbors. It's not new to us, but a lot is at stake with the decisions that we make. Think about this. This isn't just us in this room and online. For all of human history, I mean, really, the ultimate dough moment happened in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Adam and Eve, everything's perfect. Life ahead is great. Future's laid out for them. Everything they could ever want. They make a decision and then they say, dough. And we have been suffering for it for all of human history because of their decision. And it hasn't just come out in recent years. 3,000 years ago, the writer of Proverbs wrote these words. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Now, some of you are quickly to point out the gender that is, is identified here, the way that is right to a man. That's why you see those memes of this is why women live longer than men, where the ladder is propped up on the ice chest and he's at the top with duct tape, a beer, and a chainsaw. That, okay, we get that. But maybe we could kind of look at this differently. And I'm not trying to rewrite scripture, but maybe we could look at it this way. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to, oh, this path and road to nowhere, where we end up going, what was I thinking? Here's the good news for us, is that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to, to just say, well, these things happen and we're just gonna have to be this way. In, again, in Proverbs chapter 12, it says, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. When it comes to making these kind of decisions, there are really three different levels of people. There are what the Bible in Proverbs calls fools or mockers. There are people that are smart, and then there are people that are wise. And the truth is we get to choose which category we wanna land in. The fool goes down the road to nowhere and just keeps making the same mistakes. It's that whole definition of an insanity, you know, doing the same things over, but expecting different results. Man, I went down this road last time and man, it hurt really bad. And this time, same thing. And boy, as I'm going, I'm gonna expect, it's just like stupid is as stupid does. Scripture would say it this way. A canine will go back for seconds where he's already experienced reverse peristalsis. Better yet, a dog returns to his vomit. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a, fo a fool returns to his folly. We just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. Now, a smart person is different than that. 
A smart person may go down the road to doughware do and, and suffer the consequences, but says, you know what? I'm going to learn from this. I mean, I'm not going to let this be wasted. I figured out what just happened, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. That's a smart person. But a wise person says, I don't even want to have to go down that road. I want to learn from other people. I want to hear what others say. I want to watch other people. I want to experience it through them because I don't want to have to make all the mistakes. I want to hear them say dough so that I can say don't. And that's what I long for us today. That as we look at this uh, out of Joshua, that we in our lives will start to recognize how we make decisions. We're in this series on Joshua, have been all fall. And as I said, in the very first week of the series, Joshua is this stellar example of an individual who rarely makes a mistake. I mean, he's just got a great track record. And I think there's a reason for that. One is that he has been committed not only by Moses, but by Yahweh to follow the law and to not turn to it to the right and to the left, to stick with it, to do what God says. And he does for the most part. The other reason I think he does so well is I think he's learned from watching Moses. If you'll remember, he was Moses' right-hand man. So he saw the mistakes that Moses made. He saw when Moses got anger, angry and he let his emotions take control of him and he destroyed the tablets. He saw what happened there and he saw the ramifications of that. And he thought, I don't want to do that kind of thing. He saw when Moses didn't have the faith necessary to do what God had told him. And instead, he took things into his own hands and with his own control that he decided that he would smack a rock when God told him not to do that. And the ramifications of that, he saw that. And the very reason that Joshua leads them into the promised land is because Moses is not allowed. It's one of his consequences because he had this dough moment. And so he learns but today we're going to look at the one maybe rare exception where Joshua doesn't do so well, where he makes a poor decision. And it's not to judge him or condemn him. And it's not to point out, look, see, let's bring him down off of his little high horse. It's none of that at all. It's so that we can learn from his experience. And maybe we could be better at making decisions, especially decisions that will impact our life and the lives of those we love. We can be better at making those decisions because a lot is at stake with the decisions that we make. So we're, we're going to look at this. It's in Joshua chapter 9. If you have your Bible or tablet, you can turn there. And I, I want us to, to hopefully like have our, our wisdom quotient come up and our, our, <laughs> our dough quotient go down as we look at this. Uh, in, in this, and I don't want you to get hung up on the details, I want you to see the truth of the principles that happen in his decision-making process that apply to us. Let me give you a little of the backstory behind Joshua chapter 9. Before the Israelites had gone into the promised land, there were a couple of kings on the east side of the Jordan, one named Sion and one named um, Og, and they had conquered these kings. And word of that had spread even into the promised land. Here come the Israelites, and they've already taken out two of these kings. In fact, when the spies went in to talk to Rahab, she mentioned that. We saw what happened. We heard what happened to Sion and Og. We're living in fear because of that. As they cross over into the Jordan River, they take on Jericho and conquer that. Pastor Kip preached about that a few weeks back. And then there was Ai, and it took two, two tries on that one, but they conquered that. And it appears to everyone in the promised land that these Israelites are just on this, this campaign, and they are going to just overthrow every city, every town, every kingdom that's in there and take it over. And that was the plan. 
So there's a group of kings that said, it appears that no king can, can stand up against this great Israelite nation. Why don't we consolidate? Why don't we have a confederacy? And so there were these, these kings that specifically, there was a Hittite king and there was an Amorite king and there was a Jebusite king and a Hivite king and there was a Canaanite king and there was a Perizzite, not Parasite, Perizzite king. And they said, Let, let's all join forces together. These guys weren't normally friendly to each other, but they said, we've got a common enemy. Let's team up together so that maybe we can stand a chance. Amongst that group, amongst the Hivites or the Hivites, there was a group, maybe part of them or all of them that said, ah, we don't think this is going to work. It was a group called the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were Hivites and, and they're from a town of Gibeah and, and from the tribe, you know, of this, this clan of, of Gibeon. And this is what it says in Joshua chapter nine, verse two, or verse three. It says, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Now Gibeon, the town, there were four of them associated with the Gibeonites. The town Gibeon was just 25 miles away from where Joshua and the men were at Ai, or at Gilgal. So they knew, I mean, they're just a stone throw away. It's just a matter of time. They may be coming for us next. And so here they are, these Gibeonites, and, and it's kind of like a clan, kind of like a family of Gibeon. They're, they're brothers, they're, they're relatives, and they're probably talking, and they know what's gonna happen. If we don't do anything, we're gonna die. Not only, we're, you're gonna die, I'm gonna, we're gonna die, mom's gonna die. We can't have this. And so these, this family, these brothers, the, the brothers Gibeonite, we'll, we'll call them the brothers Gibeonite because they're all these relatives. In fact, let's, let's shorten it up. We'll just call them the brothers Gib. In fact, let's just call them the BGs. But, but they just said, hey, whether you're a brother or whether you're the mother, we're staying alive. We're staying alive. Then they take a vote. All in favor? I, 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 staying alive. Okay, so that's their choice. They decide we are going to stay alive in this. and We're going to do whatever it takes. So they do the kind of this Halloween thing where they dress, get some, and they dress them up in costumes. And then the brothers Gibeonite, they engage in kind of this thing called trick and treaty. So they get all these costumes on and then they go knocking at the door for this trick and treaty. Now you have to kind of admire the Gibeonites. One, because of their cunning, their craftiness, their deception. I mean, albeit bad, it was very clever. The other thing is the willingness to take a major risk because they're breaking away from the Confederacy. They're saying, we don't think your plan's gonna work. And they're taking their whole future into their own hands, going up against these Israelites on a, on a plan they're not sure will even work, but they try it. Joshua chapter nine, verse four. They resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Remember, that's where kind of the home base that they would set up there where the 12 stones and the pillar and the, the monument was. And said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. Now you could read that and say, well, why all the effort? You know, why the ruse? Why the costumes? Why the old wineskins? Why, why the moldy bread? Why not just say, hey, white flag, we want to join forces with you, Israel. Why not just do that? I mean, why go through all of this? Why not just, just be straight up honest? We're scared of you guys. Can we join you? Can't beat them, join them kind of thing? Well, part of the reason is because somehow they found out 
that it was very clear, spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that the Israelites were not supposed to make treaties with anyone in the promised land. That had been spelled out in the law of Moses. Don't make treaties with any of them. Which would make us think, well, why not? Shouldn't we be peacekeepers and all that kind of stuff? The reason, the wisdom of this is that these people were far from God. They were pagan worshipers. Uh, they, they had an immoral lifestyle. And there was this understanding that Israel was tentative in their, in their fidelity to God anyway. And if they get interchanged in with these people, they're going to start being influenced negatively. They're going to be drawn away from the law of God. They're going to be worshiping these, these polytheistic pagan idols. They're going to be drawn into this immoral lifestyle, all these things. So there was not supposed to be any kind of treaty made with them. Verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Like you say you're from a far country and you've got the old shoes on, but how do we know what big eyes you have, Hivites? What big ears you have? There's just kind of this, and then look at their, they don't even answer that question. They just say, we're your servants. Kind of a little diversion, kind of a sidestep from the real issue. We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asks, he comes back again, who are you and where do you come from? And maybe there was just something, maybe there was just a gut check. Something just didn't feel quite right. There, there seemed to be, man, just, I'm not sure about this. And this is where we can learn even when we start making decisions. Uh, one author put it this way. When you're making a decision and it's a big one, you have to ask yourself, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there something inside you that says, I'm just not really sure about this? Uh, boy, if we, could, we could make this decision, but a quick decision might have lasting consequences. Is there, is there some uneasiness that, that we need to look into? Why are we feeling that way? What's going on here? Let, let's do a little more research and a little more digging. I just want to say this, and, I, and I've done this before. I think for me, that, and I haven't read all the books in the world, but the best books out there, besides the Bible, the best books that give practical advice on how to make decisions so that you don't end up saying, go over and over again, are by Andy Stanley. I've talked about these books before. One is called Ask It, and the other one is called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. These books are phenomenal. And I've told you this, if I was raising teenagers again, I would pay my children to go through these books with me. Uh, and, and these are just fantastic on just how to, to make good decisions. In one of them, Andy says something along this line, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it, so it's not word for word, Andy, but we'll give him credit. It says, where there is a cause to pause, explore rather than ignore. And there's a reason to say, well, now wait a second here, just a second. Don't ignore that. Don't say, well, just power through it and make your decision. Cause to pause, I'm a little bit uncertain. There's some tension here. Okay, let's explore that. Let's look into that. Let's, let's get a little more intel. Let's ask a few more questions. Let's ask someone else's advice. Let's sleep on it overnight. See, this is why car salesmen don't want you to leave the lot. If we could get you to drive this off the lot today, what would it take? Because they know if you go home and talk to your spouse about it, or sleep on it, look at your bank, because they've got, it's got that new car smell and ugh, with no money down and oh, it's, it all looks good. Whoa, 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 whoa. Spend some time on those decisions. Sleep on it. Ask some other advice. Pray about it. And Joshua kind of pushes. He's a little bit of a pause here, but Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? See, good questions will help us make better decisions. And he's asking this question. Now remember, 
these Gibeonites are very, very crafty. And so they give an answer, but they don't answer the question. Like, they respond to him, but they don't, they're, they're two really simple questions. Who are you guys? Like, what's your name? What's your clan? And, and where are you from? What's your nation? Look at their response. They answered, uh, your servants. <laughs> Why? You don't need to know our names. We're just your servants. That, that's who we are. We're your servants. And, and we've come from a very distant country. That, that's where it is. A land far, far away. You, you've never heard of it. Don't even worry about it. Don't worry about our name. Don't worry about our country. They're answering it, but not actually answering the question. And then they do another one of these diversions. Get their eyes off of these questions of who are you and where do you come from. It says, because of the, the fame of the Lord your God. Now they're pulling Yahweh. They're pulling the Yahweh card here. The fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt. Suddenly now they're going, hey, they're talking about Yahweh. They know about our God. They know what he did in Egypt. That was 40 years earlier. And they continue on. Said, and we've heard what happened to Sion and Og, those two kings on the east side of the Jordan. You know what they leave out? What happened to Jericho and Ai? Because that was recent. And if they were from a far country, they would not have heard about it. Brilliant, brilliant. And then they said, and look at this bread. It's all crusty and moldy, dried. When we left home, oh, it smelled so good. It was right out of the oven. It was fresh. It's been a while. You know, and these boda bags, these wineskins, I mean, that was a fresh, brand new boda bag. Look at this thing. It barely holds anything. And, and, and these shoes and these clothes, you know, it's all threadbare, man. We were styling when we left. We had brand new clothes for the road trip. That We've been traveling a long, long way. And all the signs point to, you know what? They're legit. And even the words that they're saying. In fact, they go even one step further and they test it out. <laughs> we should check, check the wisdom of these guys. They actually sampled some of the provisions like the moldy bread. Like, well, maybe that's just painted. They eat it. It all appeared to be right. Appeared like this would be a good decision. There's one little issue that they overlooked. Verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And all God's people said, Doe. Did not inquire of the Lord. Up to this point, everything Israel has done has been divinely uh, directed. Do this, cross here, go here, go here. They had followed what God did. Here's the first major decision they have to make. And they did not inquire of the Lord. Maybe we can just stop there for a second as well and look at what can we learn on this one? When we're making major decisions in our life, when all the signs seem to be pointing this way and the words seem right and we even kind of test the waters a little bit, but we don't ever really stop and say, God, what would you have? Now listen, hear me out. You know that I'm not talking about praying about which socks to wear each day. It's not those, it's those kind of decisions that are gonna impact our life. And Paul would write to the church in Ephesus and he would say, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Inquire of the Lord. And, and again, I know you're saying, well, how do we know what the Lord's will is? And there's times when I wrestle, God, what is your will on this thing? Well, maybe the good starting point is to just ask him. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you is lacking wisdom, he ought to ask of the Lord who gives freely to all without finding fault. Maybe the first part is to say, God, what's your will on this one? And then another thing 
is God's word. Because I can speak with absolute authority on this one. God's will will never counter God's word. Sometimes people say, well, I think it's God's will that I do this. If it counters God's word, it's not God's will. I don't, I don't care if an angel showed up to you in a dream and said, this is what you're supposed to do. If it counters God's word, it's not God's will. I don't care if your alphabet soup spelled it out. I don't care if it's skywriting in the sky. If it goes against God's word, it's not God's will. And, and God's spirit, to pray that God's spirit would, would guide and convict you. He's, he's the one that will lead us into all truth. And, and God's people, like godly counsel, go to people who love the Lord, who, who know his word, who love you and have no skin in the game on this decision. Say, could you give me your perspective on this? Could you give me your insights on this? But I think the truth is sometimes we don't want God's will. We don't even want to hear it because it all looks good. It all sounds good. It makes sense in our mind. We can justify all this. This is all good here. Maybe we should just go ahead with this. And may I remind you of those verses that so many of you have memorized out of Proverbs chapter three, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, seek him, ask him, and he will direct your path. And the will of God and the path of God is not the road that leads to nowhere. It's the road that leads to life. To ask, God, what would you have me to do? What, what is your will here? All right, so Joshua and the man, they make three major mistakes. One of them we already looked at. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. The men of Israel sampled the provisions. That was not the mistake. Here's the first one. But did not inquire of the Lord. In response to that, here comes the second mistake. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. This was disobedience. Under like false pretense, they had been lied to, granted that, but they had been told and they didn't inquire of the Lord. Do you think that maybe had they inquired of the Lord, God would have kind of given them some direction on that? And then they did make one other mistake and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. They sealed the deal and they brought Yahweh into this equation now. So here they've got these three bad decisions. And what we'll find is that the decisions that they make will have long lasting consequences. Three days later, probably as they're marching up towards Gibeon, three days later, they found out that they had been lied to. They found out this whole thing was a ruse. They found out that they had made a treaty and entered into a covenant, an oath with these foreigners in the promised land. And the response of all the people, they're, they're frustrated. They're, they're grumbling against Joshua and all the leaders. And, and it, it implies that they're saying, oh, we don't care about the treaty and we don't care about the oath. Get a rope. Let's string these guys up. This is, these are, we are not supposed to have this. They're, they're grumbling about all of this. And you can understand kind of why. I mean, there, there's some selfish motivation. Four of the cities that were supposed to be theirs are no longer going to be theirs. All the plunder from those cities are no longer going to be available to them. And on top of that, as a Jewish person, to have these unclean, pagan God-worshipping, non-Jewish people living in their land for the rest of their lives. And they grumble and they complain. So this is verse, verse 19. All the leaders answered according to their grumbling, 
We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that the wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. Now, here's something we can learn on this one as well. And this one isn't a fun one. This isn't a fun lesson. It's not an easy lesson, but it's a very important one. The solution to a bad decision is never another bad decision. How many times we make a decision, now we got to cover up for it, now we got to lie about it, now we got to try and do this. I mean, David, David's the stellar example of this one, makes this horrible decision gets caught in, there's some consequences, tries to cover it up, tries to lie, ends up making a, another decision just over and over and over again. Listen, you've heard it your whole life. Two wrongs don't make a right. That's simple math. Two wrongs make two wrongs. Two wrongs, it's actually not even addition. It's usually multiplication. And the one thing they had wisdom on, they're saying, listen, we made a bad decision. We're not going to make another bad decision to try and get us out of the first bad decision. And some of us, that's all we need to hear today because we have a tendency to do that. A little side note for those of you who want to go deeper, just put in your margin if you're writing this down, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 21, because 400 years later, Saul would actually break this treaty and this oath and they would suffer for it. Okay, read that on your own. David, or Joshua says to them, why did you guys do this to us? Why did you deceive us? Why did you lie to us? Why did you trick us? <laughs> I like that. This is not biblical at all, but I, that, that quote from Adelaide Stevenson, he said, a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in trouble. <laughs> and they said, we'll tell you why. We were scared, verse 24. They answered Joshua, your servants were, uh, were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites. Sounds like they were ready to break the treaty and break the oath right then. He saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community. They're going to live. They're going to keep their cities. But they're going to serve us. And he goes in a, a step further. Not just for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. Now, here's what I've already pointed out that I want to say again. The decisions we make very often have consequences that go far beyond the decision and the event that go with us. The Gibeonites would be in Israel for the rest of their history. The Gibeonites would still have their cities the Gibeonites would be a, a, a part of them. And nowhere in the treaty does it say they have to worship Yahweh. They have to become Jewish. They can go on with their pagan lifestyle. They can go on being this moral cancer within the, the, the city and the culture, within this, in the uh, nation. It's part of the consequence that would go on for hundreds of years. And again, if we bring this real personally and back to home, 
if we were completely honest and unafraid and bold, I think we could all come up here one by one with a microphone and talk about decisions that we've made that had long-lasting consequences in our life. Decisions that we look back on and say, you know what, that, that was a decision I made. Let me tell you what that did to the dream that I had in this career or this business. Let me tell you what that did to our home and our children and, and my marriage. Let me tell you what this did to me financially and the debt that I, and how many years it's taken me to dig out of this and my credit score that's destroyed and, and what it did to my, my dreams for my retirement. Let me tell you about this decision and, and how, it, how it, it landed me with a criminal record that I have to live with for the rest of my life. Some of the emotional scars, some of the friendships that are no longer existing. We could go through all of these consequences that have happened because of our decisions. And some of you right now are saying, wow, really glad I came to church today. This cheery. I already feel bad. Now you're making me feel worse. Is that just it? Bad decisions, consequences, I'm stuck for life. We make bad decisions and there are consequences. That's true. But here's the incredible good news of the grace of our God. There are consequences, yes, and some of them we may have for the rest of our life. And there is redemption. Yes, there are consequences. There's forgiveness. And God can redeem it. This is what I believe about our God. This is about our God, not about us. That it doesn't matter how dark our decisions, how self-centered they are, how sinful they are, how rebellious they are, how disobedient they are, God can redeem them for his glory. Let me take this situation that we we're just talking about out of Joshua, how God takes this decision that was disobedient with consequences, but redeems it for his glory. About 350, 450 years later, David is the king, and he has this group of men, kind of this, this inner sanctum special forces called David's mighty men. And there are 30 of them. These are like the hand-selected guys with David. And one of them is a guy named Ismaiah the Gibeonite. He was not only one of David's 30 men, he was a leader of the 30 men. And in this town, Gibeon, that they were supposed to take over, but it remained a Gibeonite town. When David decides to move the tabernacle from Shiloh, he moves it to Gibeon so that the Lord is worshiped in this Gibeonite town. And when Solomon becomes king and he realizes, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I'm scared to death to be king. I don't know. And he, he makes a thousand burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings, at the altar of the Lord in the town of Gibeon. And that's where he prays and says, God, you know, God says, whatever you ask, I'll give to you. And he says, give me a discerning heart. It's so beautiful to me that in a town that is symbolic of the foolish decision of Joshua, God grants Solomon the wisdom of all wisdom. It's the redemption of God. And here are this whole group of Gibeonites who were outsiders, who were excluded. And because of God's grace, now somehow they're included in Israel. And they're given this job, and it's meant to be kind of a, kind of a punishment that they would, they would cut wood and they would carry water, but they would do it for the altar of the Lord. And maybe there was just early on, there was some wisdom in that, that they would be protected if they stayed near to the priests and the Levites and the rest of Israel wants to kill them. And, and maybe it was a containment thing because they didn't want their beliefs to get spread throughout the nation 
But maybe it was part of God's divine grace that says, you know what, I'm gonna redeem this. And I'm gonna put them in a position, really a position of honor, working with the priests and the Levites at the altar of the Lord. And what would the psalmist say in Psalm 84? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And here are the Gibeonites working at the very altar of God. And years later, after the Babylonian exile, when Zerubbabel brings some back to rebuild the temple, and he lists off all the people he brings back from Babylon to rebuild the temple, the Gibeonites come with him. And following that, when Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that had been in disrepair for so long, he lists all the people that are brought back with him. And the Gibeonites are brought back. You see how God redeems by his grace, by his sovereignty, by his power, and takes something that was so negative and wrong, rebellious, disobedient, and yet brings it around. And this beauty out of ashes. You're so familiar with this verse out of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And again, I think there are some of us that could come up here and say, let me tell you how God brought beauty out of my ashes. Let me tell you about some of the stupid bonehead decisions I've made that have consequences that I'm dealing with today, but let me tell you what God has done because of that. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, you know, I would never want this again, what happened that was awful, but you know what God has done? This healing and this redemption and this beauty stuff, this life that I have now, all because of God's glory. I've had people say, you know, that DUI was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was horrible, but you know what? God has changed in my life and my family, my business. Everything is different. This hardship where I hit rock bottom, God took me from that and he has brought this spiritual redemption in my life and I am fully alive in him over and over again. That God in his goodness and his grace can take our worst decisions and if we'll bring them to him, he can redeem them for his glory. And so some of you are saying, so I can do whatever I want. Stupid is as stupid does. That'd be called dumb and dumber. You're back to the canine returning to his reverse peristalsis. What does it say in Romans chapter 6? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Are you kidding me? The reason that God loves us and he says, don't do these things, is he wants to protect us from those scars. He wants us to, to not have to go down the road to dowear. He doesn't want us to have to have these experiences that we have to, he wants us to avoid those things. Again, in Ephesians chapter five, verse 15, it says, be very careful then how you live. Not careless, not reckless, not just drifting through defaulting. Be very careful about how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Don't go back into the spin cycle of the cesspool of your poor decisions. Don't be a fool. Learn from these things. Be very careful how you live. Maybe we could say it this way. It's intentionally pursuing a no-do life. Say, so you know what? I've made enough decisions 
From now on, I want to know what God's will is. I want to pause. I want to think. I want to ask more questions. I want to be so, not to be so quick to make decisions. I don't, I don't want to listen to my own feelings as much. Now, well, as I, I said this a few weeks ago, that quote from uh, Francis Chan. Whenever I disagree with God's word, I'll just assume I'm wrong. I'm just going to go with God's word on this. Because the God who loves you more than you love yourself, and the God who knows what's around the corner, and the God who knows what you're going to face, and the God who wants the very best for you, says, I can keep you away from the road to nowhere. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Can I just tell you? God's good, pleasing, and perfect will will not take you down the road to nowhere. A lot is at stake with the decisions we make. And my desire is this, that our wisdom quotient will just rise and our dough quotient will diminish and we'll live and walk according to God's word and his way and his will. And we get to choose that even today.